This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by The Witness, a Black Christian Collective. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Follow at your own risk. And joining me, as always, is the president of The Witness, the man, the myth, the legend, the best-selling author, Mr. Blue Check Verified himself, Jamar Tisby. What's going on, brother? What's going on, man? Uh, last time we were on the mic, it was not that long ago. But it feels like a long time because we were on the mic in person live last time. And now we are back to our old laptop virtual distance <laughs> kind of relationship. Late night coffee, you chamomile know. tea, you know what I'm saying? A little two Just scoops of honey. The situation. gritty. Yes. The nitty gritty. You see what I said? Follow at your own risk. Like my voice was like, <laughs> you know, my voice like, I don't know if I got it, Doc. Um, nah, man. I, it was just such a joy. We're about a week removed from our first national conference, Joy and Justice, which took place on October 4th and 5th in Chicago, Illinois, at the historic Ebenezer Missionary Baptist Church. And it was electric. It was everything that I needed. I know there are so many people that said it was everything they needed. And it's kind of surreal because we haven't had a chance. Jamar and I were actually talking about this before we press record. We hadn't had a chance to actually sit down and, and really process it yet. And we haven't had a chance to even talk with each other about it. I mean, maybe the the you know the day after we talked about it for like an hour and a half, but it was still so fresh, and I I feel like our thoughts were so scattered, and we were thinking about future stuff and kind of planning and plotting that we just didn't have a chance to really sit in it. So I, you know, now that we've sat in it for seven days, uh, Jamar, what you what you feeling about joy and justice, man? I, how did you feel it went, and and what was your assessment of? What was taking place in the building? You know, I, I I was sort of reflecting on my thoughts before the conference because I was so I was just this bundle of anxiety, right? Like there were a million different things that had to get done. Um, a lot of them looked like they wouldn't get done. But I, even as I was thinking and feeling that, I was also praying, God, I hope that after this conference. All of these things that I worried about will look ridiculous because it just yes. went so well and you came through so yes. powerfully. And I got to tell you, the Lord answered that prayer. Looking back on all the work, on all the trouble, on all the, you know, waking up in the middle of the night, sending an email, whatever it might be, it was worth it. Um, let me just tell a quick story that sort of encapsulates why I think it was worth it. I was in Minneapolis uh, this week, earlier this week, and um, it was incredible because I ran into several people from a particular church that had all gone to the conference. And so it was great to see them one week and then see them the next. And I gave a talk and during the Q&A, you know, they had the mic in, in the audience. One young lady, a black woman came up and she said that she had been at the conference uh, the week before. And she said that as a black Christian woman, she felt so safe there. Wow. That she could just be fully herself. And I said, that's it. That's wow. precisely what we prayed for. That's what we wanted. So mm. I'm in, I'm amazed. I'm in awe. And I, I think it's a model. I think it's a paradigm for what a Christian, truly Black-centered conference can be like. Not the only one, yeah, but I thought, well, you know, certainly for the first time and for what we've been through and what we've come out of, it was incredible. Yeah, man, that is so encouraging to hear because knowing these two black men um, and how we've kind of created um, environments that were unsafe in the past, I'm sure unknowingly with the best of intentions, but still unsafe. Um, it is just a testament, number one, to the grace of God and number two, to an amazing team that has bared with us and helped us and was willing to do literally anything that was asked of them. And so I have to shout out our conference organizer, Zena, 
She did a phenomenal job. Yes. The entire team from Bo to Ali to Adam to Elodie, Aaron, Michael, Ray with the with the photos, our incredible speakers. I mean, man, I could just go down the line. On and, and on and on. Everybody and, came through. And I have to give just a massive shout out to the venue, the historic Ebenezer yes. Missionary Baptist Church. They showed up. They helped us. Volunteers were consistent, were ready. And many of them are, you know, in their 60s, 70s, maybe <laughs> yes. 80s. But they were there long hours, late nights, early mornings to make sure that we were prepared um, for this conference and that they were prepared to just host us so well. So a uh, big shout out to them and the entire team there because uh, they made it worth it and they made it uh, just a special moment for us. And before the the conference ever happened, you know, I was talking with the team about this idea of what did I want to see and what do we want to see? And the thing that kept resonating with me is I do not want this just to be a cognitive conference. And I feel like mm. sometimes we approach these conferences and the space itself is dead, not because the the intellect that's being shared isn't good. It's great. The content is great, but it's solely cognitive. And I think it's a Eurocentric idea that we just engage our minds and we cut off our emotions and we just go in and we expect to engage in one dimension, which is how we think instead of fully feeling, fully embracing all of our emotions. And so I said, I wanted this to be cognitive and emotive. And I kept saying that cognitive and emotive. And it's weird because I didn't necessarily have a model, not saying that there weren't conferences that have done that, but I just didn't, I couldn't think of a model of what I was specifically looking for, especially in a black centered context. So we knew it was going to be a mixed audience, but I wanted to be black centered and cognitive along with emotive in equal measure and equal degree. Uh, so that we could hmm. feel and be, but not so that we could, you know, it could be voyeuristic for the white attendees or not that we could feel like we were putting on a show or feel like we were, you know, subject to the white gaze or what have you. And I'm not saying it was perfect, but I feel like it was truly the closest thing that I desired to what was in my head and what actually came out. It just seemed so seamless. And I think a huge part of that was Michelle Higgins leading worship and the way yes. in which she drew us in and the way in which she forced us out of our comfort zone. And even if you hadn't been to a black church traditionally, she forced you to enter into that space and to, and this is what black churches do. They push you and pull you out of your comfort zone and they, they, they get your whole body moving. They get your whole essence going, you know, and you, so you can't just sit back and be passive. And I think our speakers embraced it too, from McKemini to Dr. John Faison to Dr. Nicole Massey-Martin. And of course, this one guy who I don't know, um, he's an upstart historian named Jamar Tisby. Um, <laughs> he, he did it as well. And you know, all you guys just really encompassed and embodied what I was going for. And there's one moment that I'm careful to share because it was such a holy moment. And I feel like it was kind of tied to the conference that I don't want to share it and make it seem like I'm using these guys as a prop because I really wasn't. But I was walking out of Jamar and I had this, this interview in which we argued. I don't know if they're going to ever release that video, but Jamar and I got into this knockdown drag out argument for like 20 minutes um, on the tail end of like an hour long video interview. And I'm walking out of this argument that Jamar and I have it on camera, which was a friendly, you know, it was friendly. I'm walking out of this argument and these, it was like a group of young black men and they were sitting on the, oh, yeah. of the chapel and one of them reaches out. They're like, yo, yo. And, and you know, I was like, man, these dudes, cause, cause if, if it had been back home, I would have, uh, I would have got after them. They were like, Mr. Tyler, Mr. Tyler. I'm like, don't call me no Mr. Tyler. Uh, you know, You're getting like, old uncle nah, culture. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. <laughs> and uh, so they were like, yo, so they asked me a question. And they were like, Jamar had to go, but he was like, yo, Tyler would be the perfect person to, to answer that question. I don't know why you said that. And they asked me an apologetics question. And I remember thinking like, yo, I have so much stuff to do. Like I was thinking in my head, like I have this to do, I have that to do, I have this to do, I have that to do. And... I was like, none of that matters because it's like 10 or 12 young black men that are like sitting right here. So I was just like, whatever. If that stuff doesn't get done, it just doesn't get done. 
and I hope people will have grace. And we talked for like an hour. And we just we just sat there. We just talked and chopped it up about everything from church to being black men uh, to how people have expressed faith to I mean, we got into hermeneutics and how we view the the lens of the scripture, which we view because one guy, he was a black Hebrew Israelite. So he was like, this is how I view the scripture. And I'm like, yeah, but see, here's here's the problem with that, because I view it this way. And, you know, we're just going back and forth. It was the highlight of my, it was one of the best moments of my year because Mm. I felt like these young men are so brilliant, fully engaged. And I felt like has anyone, and not, not saying that they don't get this at their college, but it's like, does anyone really like sit down and consider like the implications of being black and being a young college student in a predominantly white environment and oh, being man. a Christian and really sitting in that. And I haven't shared the photos that we took because I just it just feels so holy. It feels almost too holy to share in some ways. Like I almost want to keep that moment private. Um, but people were like walking around. I didn't care about who was walking around, who was looking. Nobody cared. Like we were just in our zone. And it was like, man, this is when you find black men who care about you, like the whole you, all of you, this is what this feels like. And the eyes and the responses, I don't know, man, just shout out to y'all. Y'all know who you are. And it was just a special moment. And I was like, the conference created that environment and it made me emotional. And I had to go on an MC after that. And I was a mess privately, but, um, I was like, man, we get to do this. Like we actually get to do this. Mm. Yeah, like God has graced yeah. us with this. This is a joy for us. And it's a great sacrifice. And there are times where we're like, are we even supposed to be doing this? But God has given us that privilege. And so that was the moment that, that really stood out for me. So if folks want to experience vicariously the Joy and Justice Conference, um, thanks to the very hard work of our AV team we do have a digital access pass available. So you can get videos of all the keynotes and audio of all the workshops. So as far as the content, you can access all of that. Um, What's the website? How do they go there? Joinjustice.com. To go to joinjustice.com, you can see the digital pass. It is available for purchase. And let me tell you, it is a steal of a deal. And people have been saying yes. it's actually kind of better <laughs> than the actual conference admission itself because, I mean, you can watch and you got all the talks now. Now, if you attended the conference, you also get the talks as well. So you're going to be getting that as well in your email. Um, but you get all the breakout sessions and some other special stuff as well that we have not told anybody that we're going to be releasing in that space. So go to joyandjustice.com and purchase your digital access to the conference right now. And you'll get all those talks and you can purchase some a la carte. It's just, it's crazy. So shout out to the AB team of The Witness for being clutch and being incredible and for giving you guys that opportunity. Okay. So Jamar, we have to kind of shift gears here, unfortunately, and we have to talk about um. Yeah, bro. I don't. I don't even really know how to tee this up. I don't really even know. Um. I'm. I'm so. The title. I'm, I'm so angry, bro. Like I'm so yeah. angry. I'm so frustrated. I am somewhat in despair, if I'm frank with you. Hmm. And I'm. I'm tired, bro. I'm just so. I'm tired, man. I'm tired of them killing us. I'm tired of it. I I don't. I'm tired of functioning well when I'm watching uh, story after story of us getting killed senselessly. Um, I'm I'm tired, bro. Like I'm just I'm really frustrated. Like I am. I don't like. I normally I'm like, oh man, let's do this and let's polish it out. And let's and I'm like, bro, I'm just so pissed. That I don't really know how to like tee this up, but I just will start by saying her name, Tatiana Jefferson, and she's she was 28 years old and she was killed by the Fort Worth Police Department, um, in her own home, in her own home, y'all. Uh, she was playing video games with her nephew. 
her neighbor, who's a black man, um, was alerted by his niece that her doors were open. Both of her doors were open. He thought that that was odd. So he approached and then saw that both the doors were open, didn't hear anything, and then also saw that all the lights were on. So he called the police department's non-emergency number for a welfare check. He goes back in his house. Next thing he knows, he hears um, one loud bang. And then he said five to 10 police officers surrounding the house. And what we come to find out is that a police officer approached and looked in the bedroom window. She got up to figure out what was going on. He yelled something out. A second later, she was shot and killed. And in her own home, Jamar, like, what are we, what is... I don't I don't understand. I don't get it. I don't understand. I'm frustrated. And the only thing I can say and the only thing I've been able to even articulate is stop killing us. Like just stop. Stop killing our people. Um, and we pray beforehand. And I feel those prayers. I just I'm so tired of them killing us, bro. Like, I'm so sick of it. And I know it's dangerous to, like, process on the mic because people can take and use and flip and do whatever. I don't even care Um, because y'all know me and y'all know my heart and y'all know my desire. If you know me for real, great. If you don't, I don't really care what you think of, of what I'm saying. But I am so sick of our people watching other members of our community die on body cam. I'm so sick of our homes being entered into for whatever excuse and reason and a trigger being pulled and our lives being taken. I'm so sick of it, bro. I'm sick of our kids having to develop coping mechanisms. I'm sick of our young men and our teenagers having to figure out how they can They can heal a divide that they didn't start themselves by having to go and hug somebody and forgive them. I'm sick of our kids having to look at dead bodies of their parents and their aunts and their uncles and their dads. And I'm tired, bro. Like how much more, how much more do we have to do? And this is, this is the issue. The issue is not that people aren't upset or people don't do something. The issue is that we get upset and then we revert back to the same good old fanciful, nice, neat, tied up in a bow expression. This is hell, bro. Like we need to be straight up about it. We need to be honest about what this is. We are living in occupied territory. Because at any point in time, our houses can be entered into and just by fear of of bodily harm or by perception of threat, we can be killed. And what are we? I'm I'm like, yo, I got so mad when I saw the GoFundMe for her for her funeral. I got so mad. I'm like, this is just this is senseless. This is pointless. We just buried both them, John. Like we just had this scenario again, and there's dozens of other scenarios we continue to have again and again and again. And I'm just saying at a certain point, when do we get so fed up with this narrative? When do we get so tired of this, of this premature catharsis, premature reconciliation that says it's going to be open? I don't know if it's going to be okay. I know it's going to be okay eternally. I don't know if it's going to be okay here. I don't know that. Nothing that I've seen tells me that. Nothing that I've seen gives me that confidence. And I'm tired of functioning high and looking at my kids being like, man, I really need to hug my kids for real every single time I leave my house. Because every single time I leave my house, that could be it. There was a scenario. I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm talking. But there was a scenario earlier this year. And I forget what was going on and why I was home alone, but I was home alone and I was cleaning the house and I remember cleaning the house and stepping into our back bedroom and I was looking for something and then I came back in and I was getting ready to take the trash out and I walked towards 
our kitchen and in the hallway, which is the entryway into our house, um, the door was open. My front door was open. And so we have two locks on the bottom of that deadbolt chain. And the deadbolt chain was the only thing that kept the door from coming in. And I was like, what? Like, And so I was like, man, I've been here for a couple of hours. So I know I didn't just leave the door open. I know I didn't leave it unlocked. I know I locked it. I know everything was set. And so I called my dad and I was like, yo, I don't know what's going on. I kind of think someone tried to break into my house. And he was like, yo, that's crazy because we were just at the church doing our prayer, which is what we normally do midweek prayer. And he was like, I just got this feeling that I need to pray for you and your family. Like I really need to like intercede for you and your family. He was like, this is just, it's random. And he was like, what do you think you should do? Are you going to call the police? And I stopped and I said, yeah. I said, no, I'm not. Right. And he was like, really? I was like, heck no. I'm not calling the police. I'm not letting them anywhere near my house. And he was like, yo, okay. I mean, if you feel like, man, make sure you sweep the perimeter, make sure everything's good if I need to come by or whatever. And I was like, yo, I was so frustrated because I'm like, man, if my wife, if this was my wife, I would beg her not to call the authorities, but I don't know what I would tell her to actually do. I don't know. I don't know. The, I don't know the recourse. If she calls the authorities, I have no confidence. I have absolutely zero confidence. I have zero assurance that something bad is not going to happen to her. I have no confidence of that. How would I know? How would I know that they don't perceive that she's the one who broke in or if she steps outside that they don't draw on her with my kids? I have absolutely no confidence. And so I'm like, I don't know how to live in this reality. I think we are getting to a place where I'm like, yo, I don't know how to, I don't get it. I don't know. I ain't got no answers. People are like, what do we do? I don't know. No more panels. I'm not sitting on no more panels talking about this as if I know the answers. I'm telling y'all, I don't know. And I think we're all just throwing our hands up like, yo, what? We can we can act all big and bad if we want to. We can act all, yo, we got to organize and let's do this and revolution all we want to. I'm just going to be straight. I'm scared, bro. And I think more of us need to just say, look, I'm scared. I'm terrified. I'm tired. I have no idea how I'm supposed to protect my family other than establishing and making sure that there are cameras at every place so that if someone were to ever do something in my house or around me, I'm like, do I need to get a camera for my for my car? Do I need to get a camera for everywhere I go? Do I need to just have a camera on me? Because I just don't know what narrative they're going to spin. We found a gun. Look, here, here's a gun. Here's a still shot of a gun. Oh, look, here's, here, let's plant this. Let's plant weed in his apartment. What do I have to do? Like, what do I have to do? What do we have to do to ensure that these people, this institution, this State police force will stop killing us. I don't know. I I think you said it. Stop killing us. You can't get any more straightforward, any more concise, any more reasonable than that. Stop killing us. Murdering us, assassinating us, lynching us. I'm angry and I'm afraid. And those are the only two things I can feel right now. You articulated it perfectly. uh, Everything I feel. Just that I don't think if if you're not black, (laughs) um, maybe other people of color feel this. But Yeah, no, for sure. Like... That your very body is a threat in this society. That 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 you just walking around doing nothing more innocent than playing a video game with your nephew. And you can get killed in your own home? That you can be doing nothing more 
innocent than eating ice cream in your own apartment and you can get killed in your own home, that you can do nothing more mundane than get pulled over for a taillight or speeding or for no reason at all and end up getting killed. And there's nothing that you did there and there's no predictability to it. So you walk around knowing that your very skin, the skin that God gave you to live in, puts you in harm's way, puts you in lethal danger on a daily basis, most particularly by the people who are empowered by the government and by the state to serve and protect, but also to use lethal force. I would say if necessary, but really they're empowered to use lethal force whenever they feel threatened, which many times turns out not to be a threatening situation at all. The threat is simply our black skin. And yes, this is a problem with law enforcement. Yes, this is a problem with the police, but it's so much more than that. I think what's so much deeper, bro. It's so much deeper. What what frustrates me even more than than these particular instances or the institution of law enforcement itself is the pervasive ideology of white supremacy, which makes blackness a threat, which makes human beings image bearers just because of the way they look or the community they might live in, a a perceived danger that needs to be lethally dealt with. Um, And so... What really frustrates me is the flat fact that I go to school in a state where they still have the Confederate emblem on a flag. Like we're arguing about this still, and we are getting killed in in mass day after day after day after day, caught on video that I go to school where there's a Confederate monument to quote unquote welcome people to campus and people get up in arms at this, that that um uh Senators and politicians can wear blackface like it's a joke without any actual le- uh, political repercussions. That 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 we can say something as simple and plain and truthful as Black Lives Matter and other Christians jump all over us for being critical race theorists or Marxist or liberal or whatever it might be. Like we actually have to make the case for our humanity in the face of daily instances of dehumanization, even murder, for no other reason than a color of our skin. That's what burns me up. I still have to make this case to people and to a lot of Christians. And and, and this is not really even just about white Christians. This is about an ideology that anybody of any race or ethnicity can adopt. So there are other people of color who, who think that focusing on this stuff is is bad. There's a distraction from the gospel. Who are co-conspirating with white supremacy? Co-conspirators, like don't don't because it's sin and because it's it's an idea that affects our actions and vice versa. It 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 affects everyone. It can, and so you know all these people bashing. I know you hate this term, Tyler, but bashing wokeness, bashing any sort of consciousness, right? It just it boggles my mind and it infuriates me because. They have no evidence to the contrary that 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 they have no evidence that what we're doing is is not what's supposed to be done. In fact, all the evidence points to the fact that everyone should be up in arms about this continuing injustice toward people of color and black people in particular. And I just I I'm I I don't have the breath to argue with you. I don't have the um the characters to type to you anymore. If you cannot see the epidemic of of black life not mattering in this society, I don't ha- I, I don't have anything to tell you. Yeah, I mean, at this point, it's spiritual blindness. Like this is blindness. Um, it's willful ignorance. It's it is a desire not to be bothered, not to be discomforted. It is an idea. It is a resting on our own good intentions and the purity of ourselves. Um, and it is a failure to love neighbor well. 
and love neighbor in all the ways that will ensure that neighbor is not harmed by a society that is supposed to protect and create the conditions that cause them, all of us, to flourish. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm at this place, and this is what's so crazy to me. Like, so here's what happens. Every single time one of these things happen, it is so, it's so wild to see that you will have, you will have white Christians and they will tell you white pastors and they will be so upset. And I'm like, okay, I understand you're upset. Like, yo, I appreciate that. Appreciate that thought. But how are you combating this on a daily basis? I see too many people. Too many Christians who are tourists, who traffic in our tragedy, who are tourists who set, who stand up and make the, the big Facebook post that is supposed to be brave, the big Twitter thread that is supposed to be courageous. You have to make sure that if you are saying you love us, you care about us, what is the systemic change that is taking place? Why is it that I have to drive down the road and I have to constantly see Confederate flags in my own city? Like, who is not talking to that person? Who is not saying something to that relative, that neighbor that says, look, I know you're going to be upset with this, but this right here, you got to do that. You got to do something with this because you are re-traumatizing Every single time I'm driving down the road, I'm seeing huge Confederate flags. There's nothing that the government can do to ban that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying, what church do these people go to? That's right. Oh, that's right. Like, who are these people that are putting these massive Confederate flags on the back of trucks and driving down black neighborhoods? What are y'all, what, what is happening here? Why is it that this is acceptable in our society? Why is it that the church is playing footsies with white supremacy? That's right. Oh, we don't want to offend them. You know, we don't. Well, you know, I, like you think about that. Every time we speak, it's always a calculation like, yo, this could get me in serious trouble with this person, that person, the other person, or this general establishment of, of church people. This could get me in trouble. This, And I'm like, yo, why are we tiptoeing around the elephant. Why are we trying to play? Like, what what is happening here? Like, what is it that makes us think that this is not a deep systemic problem? And the reality is we have to stop talking about this as a tragic circumstance. We have to start addressing this as it is a systemic issue. And it's systemic, not just in our voting, not just in our politics, not just in our systems. It's systemic within our theology. It's systemic within our discipleship. It's systemic within the way that we present the gospel to people. Yep. It's, there are- it's systemic, bro. Like, and I'm just at this place of like, stop being tourists. Stop hopping in the conversation when there's a tragedy and hopping out after the tragedy has passed and then going on and doing the same exact thing that will propagate and will continue to anesthetize people from the idea that they should be up and doing something right now. Stop providing anesthesia. Like, when are we going to do that? Like, when is that going to be a thing? And so it's leading to so much angst because I'm in these mixed settings and I'm like, bro, what? I feel bad. Okay. Congratulations. I understand there are tons of, there are tons of resources that will help you in your feeling. And I'm not intending to discourage you, but I just wanted you to, I just want you to understand I am in deep pain. I know this could happen to me. And what is so shocking is it can happen to me. And then you will say, let us wait for the facts. You Mm. know me and you'll still do that. Would you march for me? Would you stand in front of the police department for me on my behalf? I talked about this before. Some happened in our area where a, a man was shot and killed by police, allegedly was trying to wrestle, wrestle, the, wrestle the gun away from the detective, was shot and killed by police, and the activist community would not let up. They were like, no, we're making demands. We sent them half the family. These are these six things that you need to do. 
And they were just going, going, going. Found out the identity of the officer. They were just going, going, going. And people were like, well, y'all doing too much. Y'all out here ruining lives. Y'all out here doing this. Y'all out here doing that. The police department had to fire that officer because in their own review, which number one, they shouldn't be investigating themselves. Side note. But in their own review, they found that he violated three to four different police procedures. This dude was shot and killed in front of his kids. In front of his kids, y'all. Five minutes away from where my church meets. And I'm like, yo, why is it that we can trust the activists that they're going to go hard? But if something happens to me and I become a hashtag, I, I don't know if the church is going to, are the churches going to band together? And frankly, me, I'm not the person that should be the test case. The test case should be the random person that they don't know, but lives right down the street from them. Hmm. When are we going to stop tiptoeing around the issue? And I'm just exhausted because we're going to get into the 2020 thing. We're going to be like, they said this, he said this, she said that, going back and forth. We're going to have to have all these extended conversations. We're going to have to block all these people on social media. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just thinking of shutting it all down, deleting it all, and saying, man, I need to focus 100% of my energy, my attention on building up black Christian causes. Because at this point... I'm not going to convince anybody that hasn't already been convinced. I'm not going to say anything that's going to make you believe. We just need to say, I'm praying for you. God bless. How can I build up my community? I'm just at that place. I'm just speaking very frank, very raw right now because I'm just, I'm tired, bro. There's there's no no qualifications necessary. Like if you can't understand the passion and the pain that's coming through the mic right now, you, you got to start somewhere else. Because we we can't we're not slowing down because black bodies stay piling up, we're not. And I think back. I mean, you're making some great points about the church, right? So first of all, we certainly have to recognize that many black churches have been dealing with this pain for centuries, and by dealing with it, I mean being there and equipping and helping black people process this. It's amazing to me how many of the folks who are affected by these deaths from both of John's family to I'm sure Tatiana's family um, and so many more, they're Christians, they're believers. So first of all, these are brothers and sisters in Christ, right? And we need to understand that. But also what they find through their faith in Jesus Christ the strength to go on in these absolutely heartrending circumstances, right? And and I don't say that as a panacea or, you know, God's just going to make it all better, you know, just magically and instantly. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is when we talk about the church, we have to realize the place of the Black church, the ongoing place of the Black church. And there's two things on this. Number one, it is really still appalling to me how national news media can totally miss the the, the Christianity and the faith of these families in these communities, Mm -hmm. which keeps them going on and keeps them fighting. Like you cannot cover these stories without addressing that. Like just shout out to, to the religion reporters on staff, but most people are going to be surprised to know that there are one or two, even at the biggest major national news outlets. Uh, There's a a, a dearth of religious reporting. Um, There's a dearth of real deep understanding of this. So then the public, doesn't realize this. And I think um, we do ourselves a disservice if we don't realize uh, how Christianity in the Black community has been a part of uh, activism and uplift for centuries. The second thing is um, that it's not every church, that there's, there's a need for Black churches still. I've said this before and I'll say it again. As long as there's racism in white churches, there will always be a need for black churches. And the battles you and I face every day online, on blogs, on the podcast, in real life, trying to convince people, not just of our humanity, but of the need to act on a systemic and institutional level to combat white supremacy, it tells me that that racism is still running rampant through our churches, which leads to my last point, 
which is that there are broad swaths of the Christian church in the United States today that don't truly think that racism is a sin. If they did, they'd act like it. Catch your pastor in adultery and watch what happens. Yeah, yeah, yes. See if an elder or deacon is doing something funny with the money and watch what happens and let that go public. Um, let, 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 let a Christian leader even uh, confess an addiction or a, a, a mental health issue yeah. and, and see what happens there. Even, even, I mean, we get it wrong. <laughs> we, we call stuff that isn't sin, sin, yeah. um, but we won't call racism sin. Or we'll call it that, but we won't act like it. So, so how we many implicate ourselves? Like we want, we want to address how we're complicit, right? And and I'm speaking mainly of of, of white folks right now, right? Because I've been in. Oh, 100%. Um, I'm using we as church, <laughs> white, white American church. Yes, yes. So, so I mean, I can count on one hand the number of instances I've simply heard about because I don't think I've ever witnessed it, but heard about people being disciplined for racism. And when they do, like discipline in the church, it's for the most egregious, obvious acts that, you know, no one can deny. But when you get down to, you know, are they flying a Confederate flag? Um, what political stances are they holding, uh, which which may lead to racial inequality outright? It's been proven, and that's not even addressed. I'm not saying it necessarily has to be disciplined per se, but it's not even addressed, right? And all of these instances where, you know, so many folks said, I have a grandfather or, or, or my dad or my mom or my cousin or my uncle, they don't get it. And these folks are in church. I'm like, okay, they don't get it. Who's doing anything about it? And I know, I know that our listeners, so many of you, are the ones having these conversations. And and but so often you're you're that lone voice in the wilderness. And there should be a team of people. Like the person who has these backwards racist beliefs should be the exception and should be they should be notorious for that because of these these racist beliefs are so out of step with the gospel. We don't treat it like that. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. And then we send people out and they become police officers and doctors oh, and uh, real estate don't agents and city council it's everywhere county commissioners. And they take these views and because nothing challenges them on a day to weekly basis, because nothing confronts them, because nothing addresses them, we have situations where through neglect, black women die after giving birth. Like through intentionality, through just the the subtle subconscious idea of we need to make sure that our community is is clean and we need to make sure our community is on the rise, they they gentrify. Like out of this idea and mentality, this implicit bias, they kill us. They allocate funds somewhere else. And it's like, well, yeah, you know, it happened. No, the fact that if the Fort Worth Police Department refused to participate in anti-bias training, a Tatiana Jefferson died because of that. Like, that's just brass tacks. <laughs> Whatever you didn't do, that's what led to her being killed. Like, this is just, it's, it's factual. It makes me think of this James Baldwin um, essay. I know you probably read it, Jamar, but this James Baldwin essay half a century ago, when he talks about uh, basically a report from an occupied territory. Mm. And he says at the end, he says, and this is a quote, this is why those pious calls to respect the law, quote unquote, always to be heard from prominent citizens each time the ghetto explodes are so obscene. The law mm. is meant to be my servant and not my master, still less my torturer and my murderer. 
to respect the law in the context in which the American Negro finds himself is simply to surrender his self-respect. Wow. That's how I feel right now. Because I just cannot see how. I cannot see how I am supposed to have confidence in a justice system that is going to give light sentences to people into our homes and kill us. If any at all. If any at all. I cannot see. I cannot see how I'm supposed to have confidence in a police department that can use my skin as a presumption of threat or a presumption of criminality and then act upon it accordingly. There's something in the mainframe that's wrong, y'all. It's something in the mainframe. This is not like, oh, this is a tragic instance. This is almost, it's almost like this is how the system was intended to be set up and it's working accordingly. It would be naive to to trust the system at this point. Absolutely. Long past the, the point where it would be naive. So the skepticism is well-founded. Um, to the Black people who are listening, like your anger, your frustration, your sort of confusion about w- what do we have to do is totally founded, is totally reasonable. It's the only reasonable response to, I, I study this stuff from a historical perspective, and it's never not been this way. It's never not. Even even in, one could argue, the height of Black citizenship, the Reconstruction era, this is also when the Ku Klux Klan comes into being. This is also when, when people are plotting, literally plotting our disfranchisement and our death simply because we we have the audacity to want our physical emancipation and full citizenship rights that white males had at that time. So it's never it's never not been the case even in the best of circumstances. Even today, you know, barely out of uh uh the historical shadow of a, the our first black president. And then we have this president. It's never not been this way. That's what's crushing. So all those feelings that you hear, all those feelings that you feel, it's 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 totally understandable. But I'm 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 angry, but I'm also activated, right? Like I don't know what else to do. I don't I don't I don't relish the thought of of sitting in my anger. That may be for a season, right? I, I can't nobody should rush past that. But like literally, what came to my mind as we're talking is you've probably seen this whole black and white picture of um, a building, and I think it was of a black newspaper that did this, but every time a, a black man, a black person was lynched, they hung a flag outside the building and that said, a man was lynched today. I want to get one of those flags and literally hang it outside my house or my office every time one of these killings happens, because it feels like we're in a Jim Crow lynching era. And the specific tactics have changed, but the death toll is there. The, the the lack of accountability, it's there. The racism and the white supremacy, it's still there. I want churches to not be afraid of splitting their congregation over this, right? Like Because the rationale is always... From a pastoral perspective, gradual change. I get that, and I, mm-hmm. for most for most issues, that's probably the right pastoral thing to do. But understand, racism is not like every single other issue, because racism is so deeply embedded into the history, into the psyche, into the operation of this nation on a widespread basis, and it affects not just individuals; it affects entire people groups. So. I don't I don't know that it would be that bad if a pastor or church leaders or teachers were to preach so strongly against racism and white supremacy in their midst that the church dwindles in size that people leave right and I know this I know pastors who have done this I spoke the other day to a white pastor who's virtually in tears because he preached a strong message against racism and literally hundreds left his church, but he's staying the course. He's staying the course because he knows that's the righteous thing to do. And if we recall our savior himself 
preached messages that made droves of people yeah, desert sex, him. man. <laughs> They're like, this is hard. This is a hard saying. They get up. It's a hard saying. The disciples barely hang on. The disciples, I was he just, turns to them. He's like, yo, y'all leaving too? Barely. And they were gone at the crucifixion. Yep. I was just reading in uh, uh, Matthew 14, John the Baptist beheaded. Why? Because he said Herod Antipas couldn't marry Herodias, his half-brother's wife. Yep, yep. And this man got beheaded. I want his head at a birthday party. She's like, give me his head. That's who I want. And I'm just like, you know, and then I think of, I think of, MLK assassinated. Medgar Evers had just come back from an organizing meeting for voting, killed in his own driveway. Fannie Lou Hamer, beaten in a rural Mississippi prison, had lifelong injuries as a result, dies relatively early and almost penniless. And I'm like, if them, why not us? Hmm. As we take a stand for racial justice. And then, and then, like you said before, Tyler, we're expected to walk around and put on this happy face and just be operational and functional. And there's no pause. There's no pause. There's no taking off a day of work. There's no uh, uh, just needing mental health day. There's no just going to a therapist nah, the, and, the and, and putting all your bro. appointments out there. The empire continues. Like it, just, the beat goes on and you are the drum getting beat every single day. And it's like, you know, that's why we die so early, even if we're not killed by a bullet. Hypertension, stress. When you walk around in your very body, not, not even what you do, just your being is a cause for you to be in danger. How, how, how are you supposed to deal with that physiologically? Right. And Joy, let alone spiritually. Yes, Dr. Joy DeGrad <laughs> talks about that, you know, this idea of intergenerational trauma and this idea of, of post-traumatic slave syndrome. And I posted this, this little video clip on social media, this idea of her talking about how some of these adaptive behaviors, these survival mechanisms that seem like, oh, we're talking down about our kids or we're talking in a certain way about people in our community it's actually adaptive behavior over centuries of trying to figure out trying to determine how to survive in you know slave owning contexts or in contexts of racial terror and people don't understand that but it's it's centuries of learned behavior that has been passed down to us and what is the answer like what are we going to do as a community and so for me i've i've had to sit back and i've had to honestly assess my life. And I've had to assess where does my dollar go? What do I support? Who am I in league with? What am I platforming at my church? What am I speaking on? I have, I've had to audit that myself because it's just so colonized. Like I have just this mentality that someone is, is leaning over and pointing and saying, make sure it's this, make sure it's that. And there is no one doing that, but it's my mentality. My mentality is just someone who is older and more powerful and a white Christian is going to come in and shut me down or do something. And I just, I don't know why I think that, but it's just ingrained in the way that I think because I've just been in so many of those institutions. And and so I've had to assess that and what is the next step and what is the next cause. And really being at the conference was pivotal for me because it gave me a sense that even as I re-engage into the world, even as I feel all this pain, even as we deal things in our in our local congregation and as we deal with things in on a national scale, as we deal with things, um, you know, generationally, as we talk about these ideas and as we vent and as we are frustrated, that there is something to do. Like we can't say there's nothing that we can do. We can do something. We might not be able to change everything, but we can do something. And you made an announcement at the end of the conference and it just set me on fire. And I I knew you were going to make the announcement, but still like, it was just something in me that was like, this is a moment. This is exciting. This is joyous because it seemed like it was not the answer that would insulate us from pain, because I don't think there is anything that will insulate us from pain that will insulate us from that challenge as you were talking about. And even maybe physical harm or even maybe being opposed in different ways. But there was something that you you mentioned 
And it was so encouraging because it made me feel like something is going to happen and help is on the way. And I remember, you know, growing up in hurricane country, we grew up in hurricane country after a hurricane comes through, you don't have any power. A lot of times you don't have running water, no food, um, or what you have is just whatever was in there, whatever you could grab off the shelves and a mad dash of what everyone was, you know, going through and how they were preparing and stockpiling for the storm. And I'll never forget one time I was in a hurricane and I just heard on the news, I heard on the transistor radio that we had that help is on the way because this this community that was in a different state had organized. I don't know how many people and they were going to come down to help. And it was just something about that gave me so much hope because I'm like, man, just knowing that help is on the way, just knowing that someone is coming, it just gives me this, this hope that it's not always going to be like this and people are working to make sure it isn't like this in the future. And people are working to make sure that whatever I lost, like they're going to replenish that. Whatever was broken, they're going to fix it. Or they're at least just going to be present with me and give me a hug and encourage me. And and when you've been in natural disaster, like that's just the one thing you think of is like, am, am I alone? Like, is this it? Is it over for me? And man, just knowing that there was help on the way. And so when you said what you said at the end, which I'll get you to talk about here in a second, I was like, yo, help is on the way. It just gave me, it just gave me that moment. I was like, ah, oh, man, this is. This is something that someone can take when they're listening to the digital access or when they're years down the line. They're like, yo, I remember when he said that and that that motivated me to go ahead and step out and do because I knew that even if I didn't know them personally, there were going to be some people who going to cheer me on and say, go and do. And we're going we gonna to have your back as you go and do. So talk about that, Jamar. Help is on the way. Um, one of the things that I have tried to lean into and tell myself more and more is that we are not powerless. That as we look back on the long scope of history and right up to the present day, the persecution, and I think that's the right word for it, the persecution that black people have faced and continue to face in this country because of race, we're not powerless in the midst of it. We have so many examples of people who have stood up, who have resisted the status quo, who have chosen to exercise courageous Christianity instead of a complicit Christianity. And honestly, yes, that's the note of hope. But the reality is there was a sense of frustration. Oftentimes, a sense of frustration leads to innovation. And so that's what I felt when we were planning this conference uh, we faced so many challenges. Um, we're we're a team that's working entirely remotely, so we're doing this over phone calls and emails and texts. We are um, it's our first time doing it, so we we had no idea what the budget would look like, or uh, you know, the venue, or 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 even whether people would come to this thing. But the one obstacle that threatened to completely derail it, the one thing that that meant maybe we actually couldn't actually have a conference was money. I was so frustrated at that because I've been reading things like the 1619 Project. I've read Ta-Nehisi Coates' The Case for Reparations. I'm listening to um, the 1619 Project podcast about the theft of, of black land from black farmers and and whatever wealth that we scraped together so often has been limited or, or or outright stolen. And that affects the church too. And so many of us have dreams and visions for the good we could do in the world in the name of God, in the name of Jesus, but we're limited by, by the fact that there's a racial wealth gap and that, that on average, a, a white family has assets 16 times that of a, the average black family, right? And that affects the church. That affects black Christians too. So, I kept asking myself, who's going to do something about this? Who's going to interrupt the cycle? And what are we going to do as the witness to build a legacy long after you and I are off the mic, long after the baton has been passed to the next generation? What legacy are we leaving behind that will help improve things in perpetuity on a systemic level? And so at the conference, I announced the 
formation, the coming formation of something called the Witness Foundation. The goal of the foundation is to raise a million dollars, which will act as the principal amount that will go into an interest-bearing account, and we will use the interest off of that million dollars to offer financial grants to Black Christian ministries so that someone will know out there that if they have a God-sized vision, if they want to do something positive in the world, if they want to push back against the white supremacy and the racism and the hopelessness that threatens to overwhelm us, help is on the way. And so that's the foundation. Um, yeah, I, I, I say it with excitement, but also with trepidation. It's a lot of money for people who don't have historical access to a lot of yeah, money. Yeah. But um, we're believing God will will raise up people um, who who have big hearts and deep pockets, or even not deep pockets, but like the widows might, uh, will give because they they believe um, that God is doing a work and that this contribution can help love our neighbors as we love ourselves. So that's that's it, man. Yeah. I, I don't I don't know what else to do. Yeah, I, <laughs> man, I lean into my family, love my family. I try to love my community well, try to create any sort of conversations and dialogue that's necessary so our community can be healed. And I try to give what I can. And I just realized the shallow pockets that I have, you know, and the shallow access that I have. And I just sit back and I say, number one, I want to make sure that that doesn't happen for my children, that they're able to walk in whatever they need to walk in. Um, and so I'm working in that way personally to ensure that that's not a, an issue for them in the future. Um, but at the same time, knowing that won't save them, <laughs> you know, and that won't protect them um, from, you know, the evils of white supremacy and racism. But, you know, if we can just, if we can help a handful of black people, a handful of black Christians to actually do something that not just that's their dream, but something that furthers and advance and advances the black Christian cause in America, it's going to be so worth it. Um, all that pain, all that frustration, all that trepidation about the work itself and raising it and the logistics and the administration, um, it pales in comparison to the joy of knowing that someone's outcome and maybe a large group of people, their outcomes have drastically changed because we were able to give them. I mean, we had some people give us stuff in the course of the conference and we just sat back and we we're like, wow. And they did it so casually. They were like, okay, yeah, sure. Here you go. And you're like, you don't understand. This is like massive. The conference probably wouldn't happen <laughs> if you didn't do that. And so we sit back and we're able to not because we want to casually do it but recognizing how significant that is for us and then how significant it is for all of our attendees, we want to replicate that process. And I'm just proud of you for the vision, um, obeying the vision that God has given you, but then also stepping out and actually saying, you know what, I'm not going to talk about it. I'm actually going to do it. And with all the frustration that we feel, with all the anger, with all the angst, with all the lament, with all the broken, I mean, this is not eloquent. This is not what we're trying to, we're not trying to win some awards with this. I mean, we're just being honest for our audience because we believe that they deserve it. But with all of that, for you to, for you to step out and do that, um, I'm proud of you. And I can't wait to see what God does in the midst of this. And for those who are listening, we don't have all the answers. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if they're going to charge this officer. I don't know any of that. But I do know help is on the way. And that's if that's all we got, we know eternal help is on the way in Jesus. And then those of us who follow him in the, in the meantime and in between time, help's on the way. So if that's all we got, that's what we got to cling to. Amen. We're not giving up. It doesn't mean we don't feel what we feel. And we need to feel those things. Those feelings motivate us to action. But just like our ancestors before us, the ones who survived the slave ships over here, the ones who survived the bull whip, the ones who survived family separations, the ones who survived lynching, the ones who survived fire hoses and dogs being sicked on them, and the ones who are surviving now, we're not going to give up. 
We're going to constantly take what action that we can, even if that action is just getting up one more day and not giving up on life, not giving up on family, not giving up on love and hope. We all we got, but God's got us. That's it. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.